What's the word, y'all? Welcome back to Called Game. Today, we got a very special episode. We have NBA champion, now turned broadcaster, the funniest, one of the funniest broadcasters out there. You can say the there. funniest. The funniest the broadcasters funniest. out there. Yeah, you can RJ. say the funniest. What's, What's going on, man? How you doing? Welcome to the show, man. Matt, I'm here just to really disrespect the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm here to do anything I can to support you. You're the first person to say something like that. Really? Usually well, am I the second guest or the first guest? Boy, so focused, you know this my trash day from the logo like Dane Bay. Tell him I gotta go and get the money, good cause the money won't pay me. If anybody really think they no balling, well please tell him come to Bay May. Or you can go to YouTube and search called game, watching an HJ, y'all. And that's game. I want to start the show by telling you my favorite highlight of your playing career. 100%. That's the um, best way to start a show. I'm going to keep it a buck with you. I was born in 96, so a lot of the... the we're going to talk about some of the early eras of your That's playing fine. career. For That's sure, fine. for sure. Okay. But one of my favorite memories of your play is 2016. Okay. Christmas Day. Okay. Clay Thompson Ooh. comes over. Okay. Kevin Durant gets caught reaching. Mm -hmm. You put him on the poster. The funny thing about that story is probably about 10 minutes later... 20 minutes later, out of the game, back in the game, and it's me and Clay, and we're both at the scorer's table at the same time. Mm. And Clay literally, am I allowed to cuss on this? You can do whatever you want. Okay, well, let me care. Uh, <laughs> Clay looks at me, we're at the scorer's table, and I, you know, I'm still locked in, we're all still locked in, and he just looks at me, he goes, fuck, anybody but you. It's just, it's just anybody but you, and then we kind of laughed. But it was cool, because Clay, I had Clay when he was a rookie, right. when I was in Golden State, Draymond as a rookie, Harrison Barnes as a rookie, so, you know, that whole group are like, I don't, I won't disrespect them and call them little brothers, but it was like, I was year 12, they were in year one and two, mm -hmm. and you know, I got to be around them. So to watch their success was right. so much fun. I just happened to be on the other side <laughs> three years later when we were battling. So, you know, it's one of my highlights also. So when you being there early in their careers, did you see the, the glow up, the blossom coming? I saw it coming, but you didn't know what they were going to be able to accomplish. Like right. you saw very quickly that we had never seen anything like it. And even the year that Steph broke that three-point record, mm -hmm. like the first year he broke it and kind of like, hey, I'm here as one of the forces, Clay was still figuring it out. Clay was probably a year or so behind that of like, he was a very good player, but I don't think Clay fully understood what he was capable of. Right. And even though he had a great year, then it slowly started building and he started understanding like, oh shit, like he might be the best shooter in the world, but... I might be the second best. Right. <laughs> so it, it became fun to watch that progression and, and how they all put in the time. And when I stand this, Cavs fans and Warriors fans hate each other. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be kind of on more of the Cavs side than right. the Warriors side. But because I knew those dudes so well, I couldn't be happier for their success. Let's kick it back to the NBA draft. Okay. You get selected by Houston, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Traded well, on draft yeah, good day. Research, all, good research. Kids, always do your research. But I, I am a student of the game. Okay. I respect as, that. As a, as an outsider, though, obviously. Fair, you know what I'm saying? We got a little bit of high school ball in here, but that, okay. that was it. That's it. Um, so you get drafted by Houston. Mm -hmm. You get traded to the to the Nets, the New Jersey Nets at that moment. Mm -hmm. And before you get traded there, they're like one of the laughing stocks of the entire league. I don't know, if you, can say, I don't know if you can say that now. Well, no, the Clippers were still the Clippers. That is true. You know, so it was like they were the Clippers of the East, mm -hmm. right? right? Now, the Clippers have, you know, they've had a glow up, and but... At the time, mm -hmm. it was the Clippers, which were a joke, and the Nets, and were the Eastern Conference joke. Right. So you get you get traded there. What is your initial reaction? Because at this point, this is before the Jason Kidd trade. 
So you go from a place that's kind of close to home, close mm-hmm. to Arizona, to the opposite side of the country on a Tina. It's not good. Why so, you on a Tina? Cause, not cause good? I always feel bad. Well, I mean, they get a bigger bag when they're drafted early, but I always feel bad for the people that get drafted to like bad situations yeah. because that can turn a career from some being great to being uh-huh. maybe not so great. Uh-huh. Uh, well, you know what it was? My first reaction. So I had one of my worst work worst workouts with the the Nets at the time. They were supposed to be drafting seventh. Mm-hmm. I had like all the slides had me somewhere between 10 and 20. So I was like, I'm not going seven. It was towards the work, end of the workout. So my workout was dog right. trash. I didn't give a shit. I was just like, oh, whatever. And so all of a sudden I get drafted by Houston. They were two games out of the playoffs. Mm-hmm. My high school team was the Rockets. Now my, my NBA team is the Rockets. Like life is great. Right. Dating a girl at the time. And she's like, I was like, hey, look, like I was at a university. I was like, the closer I am, the better chance that we could have of like keeping this thing going. So I get drafted by the Rockets, family's around, I'm excited. She's texting me, people are texting me like, yo, I'm so excited. I'm like, oh, thank you, so excited. Next thing I know, my agent's like, hold on, there's some things working. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's like, you've just been traded to New Jersey. And I was like, wait, wait, what? So I was pissed off about that very immediately. And then like the text from her went from like, I'm so excited until like, well, I guess I know what this means. <laughs> so it was like, there was a lot of emotions going on. But the funny part about it is like, so I called Byron Scott. He calls me at the time. I'm devastated. I had no idea who's on Jersey. I remember one thing about New Jersey. One that? thing. Steph, uh, Stephon Mawberry had surgery middle, late of the season. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching Turner and Steph had made a statement about, well, if, you know, I'm gonna have surgery. If we were had a chance of making the postseason, then I probably wouldn't have this surgery. And Charles Barkley says, "Well, if that was the case, then you probably shouldn't have even started this season." <laughs> and I was like, "Damn, they won 20 like eight games. Right. I won 26 games in college, so they were dog shit, right?" <laughs> so then all of a sudden, I'm driving on the freeway. I'm in Phoenix, and then I hear the Phoenix Suns have just announced a trade. Mm-hmm. And I'm like driving all of a sudden there's like Jason Kidd to New Jersey. And I was like, I almost wrecked my car because like Jason Kidd, like I know everyone knows Jason Kidd, Mm -hmm. but like for my generation, playing with Jason Kidd is like hearing you're going to play with Magic Johnson, hearing that you're going to play with Steve Nash. Like, I don't even know if there's anybody in the game right now that would equate to Jason Kidd because Jason's entire game was passing Mm -hmm. and one of the greatest to ever do it. So it was like even playing with LeBron or Luka, those guys are scorers and passers. Mm -hmm. He was purely like, his success was predicated on how much he helped other people succeed. And so at that point in time, I was, I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be a problem. I find myself defending Jason Kidd on Twitter more than almost any player ever. Really? So I'm 24 years old. We already talked about it before the show. Like my number. demographic is younger than me typically. Fair. So, you know, they're always talking about greatest point guards of all time, given their list. And I feel like Jason Kidd gets so disrespected because so many people weren't around to watch him when he was in his prime. And those were those years with you oh. at Kmart. I'll say this, look, Jason Kidd in modern day history, like modern day, uh, and we're not going to include like the Bob Cousy's, like right. the, the, the 70s. And I'm not saying that those guys aren't great because it's tough to I'll compare. It's, it's tough to compare errors. <laughs> but I will say in the last 30 years, Jason Kidd, in my opinion, is a, is a top five point guard sure. and probably top. The greatest passers of all time in modern day are probably Magic Johnson and then him. Mm. And even if you go back and look at some of the absurdities of his passes, like you go can look at a highlight and see him do seven around the back passes. But that used to be every single night, every single game. 
and and on top of it, he was a defensive monster. Mm -hmm. So like, I, I like you don't have to defend him. The real people know. The real people know. Yeah, the real people know. So you end up in in Jersey playing for the Nets, and immediately they go from a twenty something win team to a playoff team, and then you guys make a big time run. So there was really no. I mean, I mean, you can talk to this. Was there a period of time where you were? getting used to the league because i mean it happened so fast right you're, you're in the college and now you're on a playoff team trying to compete for a championship yeah well you know what i was fortunate the game was different then so i was 21 years old when i got drafted now that is still admit like so young mm -hmm. but the difference was is that i was 21 years old and now kids are coming in at 19. Right. the 13th pick in the draft could be 18 could be 19. i was 21 years old Plus, I went through three years of college. And so first year, you know, you're one of the top teams in the country at Arizona. Second year, we were a number one seed. Mm -hmm. So like your brain is always like, we got to win this game at Stanford. If we lose this game, we're going to lose the one seed. So like my sense of urgency as a player progresses through college. When you're a freshman, your eyes are wide. By the time you're a junior, you're telling the freshman like, hey, when we go to Stanford, it's going to be crazy. It's going to be this. Right, Keep right. your head. So you have a more, much more maturity level to you. Even the difference between 19 and 21, your maturity level goes up. So when I showed up there, I am a, still a rookie. I have no clue, mm -hmm. but I'm 21 years old and I'm the youngest guy on the team, but my brain is still a sense of urgency. Yeah. Like I understand like, oh, that was a big play or oh, that was that. I'm not just playing basketball. So that helped me a little bit, but I was still like eyes wide. Like we lose to the Lakers mm -hmm. and they're three-peat. Like I'm playing against Shaq and Kobe. I was born here in Los Angeles. The next thing you know, I'm playing against the Lakers in the finals. Like nothing prepares you for that. But I just feel like the difference between the 13th pick now right versus the 13th pick then you might draft an 18 year old kid at 13 yeah. where then you could draft a, a 21 year old that can actually make like a more impact just because they're more mature right do you think there is a a right direction to go in when it comes to these drafting things because like you said everything is going towards younger potential 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 instead of like this is a guy that we know that can impact the game I, look it, it's done now like we can't go back I, i'm not going to sit up here and be like oh but once they change it to the one and done because kids could still come out of high school when i was right. uh when i was playing and so a lot of those guys would just they would just like draft some of the high school kids and draft this. And it was like the guys that wanted to go to college would go to college and enjoy like sophomore, junior, senior, whatever. It's just different now. So mm -hmm. I'm not, I think the NCAA is, they, they've dropped the ball quite a bit. For and sure. now you start to see all of these competitors and people are like, what do you mean competitors to the NCAA? It's like, because the NCAA is about money. Mm -hmm. I don't care what anybody says. Like, yes, they have amateur athletes. It's not about money for lacrosse and soccer and, you know, maybe baseball, but about basketball and football, it's about money. For sure. And so now that they've dropped the ball, you see the G League now has their own special team. There's kids that are going to Australia. There's kids that are going to Europe. It's like, I don't need to go make, you know, $2 million, $5 million if you're Jalen Suggs for Gonzaga. Mm -hmm. I could go make, you know, 500000 playing for Australia, you know, in a, in a league there and then go get drafted number 10. Right. So it's just the business mindset of these players are changing earlier. And I think a lot of it is because the NCAA didn't take care of what was really their product. And that was the athletes. What was your welcome to the league moment? I, I'm sure you've been asked this millions of times. No, 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 but never by you. Okay. <laughs> but never by you. Okay. Remember I have, that. I have an idea of what you're going to say. No, you have no idea. Okay. I have no idea what my remember the <laughs> NBA moment is. Uh, I'll tell you what. Okay. It's a random one. And then I want you to tell me what you think it okay, was. Okay, I got you. Okay. So first game ever. 
playing against the Knicks, mm-hmm. right? It's a preseason game. It's in Connecticut. You know, it's whatever. It's Nets versus Knicks. This is always on their schedule because they're so close. They don't have to travel for preseason games, right. whatever. So we're playing against them. I'm coming off the bench, I'm a rookie. And all of a sudden, Byron Scott calls me. He's like, hey, hey, Richard, come on in. You got Kerry Kittle. So I'm like, here it is. I put on the jersey for the first time. I'm playing in my first actual NBA game, like with jerseys and all. Right. He goes, you got Latrell. You got Latrell. And I'm like, the motherfucker that choked somebody a couple <laughs> years ago? Okay, well, here we go. So that was kind of like my first, like, oh, this is real. Like, And, and Latrell is one of the nicest guys in the world. But it mm-hmm. was like, as a kid, you only know what the highlights are. And right. there was no, like, internet. There was no not. So the whole media narrative was like, Latrell choked someone and right. then got shipped to the Knicks. Yeah. And he was an all-star. He was, he, was a, he was a monster. But, like, the first person that I ever guarded in a game is a dude that got kicked off his team for choking someone. And I was just like. Not uh, just someone. The coach, the coach, <laughs> the, coach. <laughs> the head coach. And so that's what just, that that was kind of my first like, yo, this is trippy. What would you think I was going to say? So recently surfaced on Twitter um, a clip or video of Jordan dropping 45 yeah, on yeah. you. Well, not you as Yeah, you that's some real disrespectful stuff to just say me. Like, yeah, I was, like we were playing one-on-one. Because <laughs> I had to go back and look at the box score. You were coming off the bench. This is your rookie season. Thank you. But a lot of the highlights, I'm be honest. This is why. <laughs> this is why right now. So look, our team, one of the reasons why we were so good is we were a very good defensive team. Mm-hmm. Kerry Kittles, Kenyon Marr, and Jason Kidd were three of the best position players at, at, at defense, whatever. So everyone's taking their lumps. Like Kerry Kittles played against Jordan in the in the playoffs, like early on in his career when Jordan was with the Bulls. Yeah. You know, Jason Kidd was, you know, a Nike Jordan disciple. Like that was his era. So when I'm playing good defense, I remember looking over because a lot of times what would happen is like we would switch. Like Jason would guard him for a little bit. I would guard him. If Jason got in foul trouble, then Kerry would guard him, stuff like that. And then that was for any player. That could be AI. That could be, you know, Kobe. That could be anybody. So Jordan gets going and J. Kidd looks over at me like, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we've all been there. You're playing good defense. Keep it going. Because it was like, that's how great he was. And the real reason why Jordan is so amazing to me is that Jordan came back and we actually gave Jordan like his worst loss ever. So he uh, yeah. comes to Jersey. We're up like 40 at halftime. Mm-hmm. Like their team wasn't very good. And I think he was getting, you know, he's a little tired. So we're cruising. We're crushing him. So... He doesn't even play in the second half, right? The game is over. All the fans are mad. He doesn't even play in the second half. But the next time we played him a couple of weeks later, he made sure to get his rest, <laughs> yeah. and he came after us. And what was so ballistic about that game is that this was back when the scores were like 92. Yeah. So he scored like half their points. There was like nothing we could do to stop him. I, like I said, I'm student of the game. So I went back to look at that box score and I did see that other game you were referring to where y'all destroyed them. And I think in that game, you individually like a plus 44 when it comes to like plus look, minus. I'm look, like, I look, the younger guys, they don't really, they think that I was just LeBron's teammate yeah. and I just was this, and which is true. <laughs> But there was a time, let's say, I don't know, about about a decade where I was, you know, you know, I would say slightly above average. For sure, I mean, you don't average 20 in the early 2000s and be slightly above average. Look, I'm being humble here. Like, I was a bad man for a little bit. I was a bad man. But right. really, again, the game evolves. The games change. And I, one of the things where I was fortunate but also, you know, impacts the way you're viewed is that, like, year one through 10, 
I was, you know, one of the better players in the league, you know, probably, you know, one of the top, you know, 30 players in the league. Mm -hmm. But then year 10 through 17, I was a role player. And I have no problem with that. I'm proud of that. Like part of all of my accomplishment is because I enjoyed the game and wanted to give back, like mentoring young guys. Like I had Kawhi as a rookie. I had right. all those Golden State boys. I had Gordon Hayward when he was young. Um, so like so many guys that I got to like impact and, and talk to and share knowledge. But yeah. The way people talk shit to me, there's like, you're a bum. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. Google. <laughs> Google's your friend, bruh. I'm going to go back to those championship runs. Mm -hmm. um, which one felt like it was within reach more than the other ones? Because, of course, you get the one in Cleveland. So I'm referring San Antonio. to the, the San Antonio one. San Antonio one felt like it was more in reach. And San Antonio actually helped me prepare for the Golden State one that we won. Mm. Because the San Antonio one, and, and Tim Duncan, because we were teammates again later in, in, in my career, he actually made me feel a lot better, okay. right? Because we had we had gone to the finals. We, went, we didn't have a chance against Shaq and Kobe. That was a machine. But the next year, we were all more experienced. We did it. We went 10 in a row in the postseason. Right. It's only been done like five or six times. So we went 10 in a row in the postseason. We show up to San Antonio. We know they're good. I'm good, whatever. So the series... Is tied two two, mm -hmm. and then they go and have a great game, uh, great game five at in Jersey. Then they go and have a great game six. We lose a series. So Tim, we're on, we're teammates. You know, seven years later, and he's sitting next to me, and he goes, "Hey, um, did you guys really think you guys had a chance, like you know, against us that year?" And you know, we're sitting next to each other on the plane, and I like take a moment realizing that he's like the the goat, like mm -hmm. at at a lot of things, and I'm like, yeah. I felt like we did have a chance. I'm like, what'd you think? He goes, yeah, I thought it was like 50-50. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Tim. That makes me feel better. Just the fact that your greatness and like who you are believed that it was a 50-50 shot. And it really was. Mm. The reason why that series helped me win the championship, not me, but our team, is because in that series, I vividly remember that it was the Steve Kerrs, the Speedy Claxtons, like it was their role players that played exceptionally well, right. that made it so much harder to guard the Tims, the Tonys, the Manus, the David Robinsons. So I just remembered like, yo, seven through 10 is was the difference in this series. Mm. Fast forward 13 years, I'm in that Golden State series and I'm one of the yeah. seven through 10 guys, right? And so, in my mindset was like, you're seven through 10, but you're gonna have a chance to make an impact in this series. Mm -hmm. So just play so hard, no matter what, nonstop. Fast forward in that series, we get blown out the first two games. So the coaches, there's a ton of garbage time. So I'm out on the court during garbage time. But in my brain, I'm like, yo, go hard. Mm -hmm. Don't waste a moment. Like you're gonna have a chance to have an impact. So I play well in those like garbage moments. Kevin Love gets the concussion yeah. and the coaches are in the coaches room and they're like, well, Richard has played well when we've given him minutes like against his team. Let's start him, mm -hmm. right? And so I start game game three and I start game four and was one of the things that kind of helped kind of turn the series. But going back, if you're a basketball head, like you are, like I am, I completely relate that to my experience in year two when I was playing against the Spurs, what those guys had an impact on. Mm. And so truth be told, it was prophetic. That's, that's good perspective, man. This is why we do this show, because that, that's a story that we won't get. No, you won't get. And I talk too much and all the time. <laughs> so every once in a while, you'll hear some stuff maybe. But like the question that you asked, like for your audience, like that, that's something that, you know, the people don't hear very often. So I want to go to that Cleveland series. I'm okay. a Chicago Bulls fan, diehard. Okay. So it's like 
I was at that time. I was so anti-LeBron because of how he destroyed us every single year. Just like every lot of people were anti-Jordan. Exactly right. So in that series, at the beginning of, I was like, "Let's go Warriors!" Right? Fair. Then things start to turn. Maybe I just jumped on the bandwagon. <laughs> but once Game Seven came around, I was like diehard rooting for y'all to take this game. Yeah. And then Draymond comes out and having his best game almost Balling. ever, Balling. ever. Like, and I was he's like, a problem. I was we, like, there's no way. There's no way to win this game. Part. Did you ever hear the story about how like Bron and T. Lou got into it at halftime? No. So Bron and T. Lou get into it a little bit at halftime because Bron and uh, T. Lou comes in. It's like Bron, I need more because Bron the whole time was trying <laughs> wait, to. Wait, wait. I kid you not. Yeah, I kid <laughs> Lebron, you. Lebron, I need more. Well, because he was Bron the whole game, not the whole game, but Bron understanding game seven was trying to keep his emotions in check because half the battle in those things is trying to keep your emotions in check. He didn't say like, Bron, I need you to play hard, but he's like, Bron, you're not playing hard enough, mm -hmm. right? He's like, I know what you're doing, Bron, like you can wake up and be trash and still have 25, eight and eight. Right. That doesn't mean that you're playing your hardest and you're doing that. So I think there was a small portion of like Bron trying to keep his emotions in check, but playing hard. Cause I think the half, half time we were down like eight or something. Mm -hmm. So he goes, says that. And then T Lou gives like, no, we, we, Bron, what, what do you mean? Blah, blah. Well, some of that was because like Draymond was going off yeah. and that wasn't Bron's fault, but we're like Bron, like Draymond is that dude right now. And he's scoring, he creates, like he's the person that you really want to kind of like stranglehold their offense because then it's harder for Steph to get shots mm -hmm. and Clay to get shots. Harder, not like impossible. Cause those guys will still do they what do they what do. They do. Yeah. But uh, so then they got to get riled up. And when I tell you he came out in that second half, JR got going, yep. it was, and I think the thing that, People didn't necessarily become fans of Braun or the Cavs. What they became a fan of was history. Yes. They wanted to see, could you imagine if the team that won 73 wins with the MVP, could you imagine if the Cavs were to do that? I want to see that. Yeah. I, I want to see, you know what I'm saying? It was more of like, not that you were rooting against them because you're still watching history mm -hmm. either way yep. because that was going to be the greatest team in the history of basketball. But it was more of like, Shit, we didn't even know. We were like, we won? Like, what, what do we do now? Like, it was, it was, I understand why people kind of jumped on, but you jumped on wanting to see yeah. all that was going to happen if we were able to pull it off. In that game, I'm at a barbecue, a family barbecue. Again, okay. I'm from Chicago, all of my family's Bulls fans. So they were rooting actively against the Warriors because they can't end up being the best yeah, team of all fair. time. Yeah. So we have a group of like 15 dudes in the basement, and we're just all like, go LeBron. Yeah, Out of yeah. nowhere, go it's LeBron. It's about time you, the Chicago fans realize, like, oh, wait, we need to be Cavs fans. <laughs> and it didn't help that Steve Kerr was over there on that side. Exactly. So exactly. Steve Kerr wins either way. Right. You know? Yeah. But yeah, no, no, th that's the way it always goes. I, and I actually, so Judd Bushler, who was on that that team also with the Bulls and with Steve Kerr. He went to Arizona also. Mm -hmm. So I remember seeing him that summer and I was like, you're welcome. And he's like, man, <laughs> thank you. We're still the greatest team of all time. And I'm like, yes, you are. It'll get passed eventually, but you know, eventually, eventually. I don't, it's so hard to say because we have so many great teams now that like, you would think that Brooklyn might've been that team of it started earlier and it wasn't for the injuries and mm -hmm. the shortened season, but like, okay. But you see how many things go into it. The reason right. why the Warriors were able to do it is that all of their guys were predominantly young. Yeah, They were younger guys. So it's like, you're not worried about minutes. The mm -hmm. game was a little bit different. Steph Curry was chasing. And once they got off to that 25 and 0 start or something like that, once they got off to that start, now you're chasing history. Now you're like, dude, like we are much better than everybody else. You want the MVPs, you want the awards. So it just takes a lot of things to go right. Mm -hmm 
for that to ultimately happen. And, you know, yeah, there are probably more talented teams. There's more this and that. But in order to have a perfect season, which a 72 or 73 win season, because we've seen 67s, we've yeah. seen 69, we've seen all of these numbers. But to have that, it's got to be like perfect. Right. No injuries, you know, perfect schedule, like yeah. younger players that they're ready to go every night. So... We, we do this thing around here called Home Court Dictionary. Okay. We talk about the opposing person, my guest, hometown. So you're from um, Arizona, Phoenix area. Yeah, yeah. What is the basketball culture like there? Shit. It is? It's terrible. <laughs> it's awful. There's like, there's nothing. There's nothing. And that's the thing. Being from Chicago, there, you know, I know Chicago is a tough city. LA is a tough city. New York's a tough city. But there's always like people in your brain that were like, yo, you know, my grand, my, my great uncle used to play with so-and-so, mm -hmm. used to play with, you know, you know, Benji. And, used to, yep. and so there's legends that there. There's none in Arizona. At all. Right? There's none. There's no culture. There's no nothing. So Mike Bibby, who I said was the first one, mm -hmm. he was legitimately the first one. And he was like, I was probably like a freshman, sophomore. He was a junior. And they're like, yo, this guy, Mike Bibby, this guy, Mike Bibby. So then I see him. He's this pale little skinny guard. And, but his, you could just literally watch the game of basketball. And you're like, yo, he's just different. He's so good. Right. So he was the first one. And so... After that, I was two years younger and he went to Arizona and I kind of followed him. But like they had never seen a six, seven black dude that could run, jump, do all this stuff. So like in high school, it was it was kind of like I could do not do whatever I want, mm -hmm. but it was more of like I'm not going against other All-Americans. I'm just like having to pave my own way, which I personally believe is a little bit harder yeah. because I didn't have examples. I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel when I was an all-American Mike Bibby was still in college so he hadn't even got drafted yet right. I don't think I'd ever met an NBA player so uh not a lot of culture there from from the sport football baseball yes basketball nothing do you think that's that can change or is changing when it comes to Phoenix area because now the Phoenix Suns are good again they've seen some successful yeah, basketball yeah. I could see some younger fans looking at Devin Booker and like heck that's yeah yeah look what Vince Carter did in to the country of Canada right sure. and yeah. it's like you look at that I think what it was is that Arizona was still a relatively small state. Like Phoenix is growing, it's getting bigger. The bigger your population, the more more right. you know probability that you're gonna have better athletes. That's why LA, that's why New York, that's why Chicago. These are highly densely populated areas. Even the DC Baltimore guys, mm -hmm. there's a lot of basketball players. So I think eventually it'll get to that, but you see more prep schools. We've had guys now, this was 20 years ago, there's more of a list. It was like Mike Bibby, then me, then it was Channing Frye. Then it was Jared Bayless. Then it was Nico Mannion. You know, there, there's guys now, and then there's more press schools there. There was Nick Johnson. There's, you know, DeAndre Aiden. It has yeah. some familiarity with, with the Arizona area. So it's starting to slowly but surely grow. What do you think about the new hire? Oh, you're a jerk. You're a jerk. <laughs> I have not spoke about this. Um, a lot of emotions. Okay. A, lo a lot of emotions and... I think the new hire, I think he has a chance to be a very good coach. I think there was a lot of problems in the process mm. that I am not a very, I'm very upset about just as a, a person that's emotional to the situation. Lute Olson just passed away six months ago. Mm -hmm. And then the coach that had been there that had given stability to the program for 12 years, Sean, My Sean Miller, he just got uh, right. let go. So then all of a sudden that next hire is very much like an emotional hire, right? And it doesn't mean that it's like right or wrong or with this, it's just emotional for the people right. that are involved. And so I have no problem. I think Coach Lloyd has a chance, the coach from assistant coach from Gonzaga. But there was a recent article came out, and I put it on my Instagram and all this stuff, is that we are the only school that is considered a top 10 program 
that has hired, that is now has a head coach that has no affiliation with the program mm. and um, has never been a head coach before. Right. Now, that doesn't mean he can't be successful. And even stupid people, you know, you deal with stupid people because you're <laughs> on, online. They're like, well, Lute Olson didn't go to Arizona, but yeah. he won a final, He was in the final four as a head coach before. Right. Sean Miller didn't go to Arizona. Yes, but he had an elite eight team at Xavier, mm -hmm. right? So it was like even people that make dumb arguments are just like so misguided. Do I think we got a good coach? I, I like to believe that we have a good coach, and so I'm going to support them as best I can. Okay, I respect that answer. I, I want to go back to – the origins of Richard Jefferson. Okay. How did you find the game of basketball? Purely accidental. Mm -hmm. Some of it had to do with the fact that I was poor and I didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. Uh, my two older brothers, they used to, I was always, like me, it was always sports. I wanted to play, I wanted to run, I wanted to jump, whatever. But we didn't have money for YMCA. We didn't have mm -hmm. money for, you know, Pop Warner or Little League. That stuff cost a good amount of money. My family moved out of Los Angeles because my mom was a single mother raising three boys on welfare there. And it was super dangerous in South Central in the middle of the crack epidemic because I was born in 1980. So right. like in 85, shit was bad. Yeah. And so we moved to Phoenix with like 10 families from a church that were all here, moved to Arizona because it was the fastest growing city, opportunity, jobs, you know, cheap housing. Like everybody leaves that out of L.A. And so what happened was is that my older brothers would go to the park with their buddies, right? So they go to the park with the buddies. I'd tag along, and I'm like, you know, 11, 12, 10, 11, 12. But I had played basketball, but then my brothers then would go to work or do whatever, and then, like, what am I going to do the next day? Mm. I got nothing else to do. And that was back when your parents would just kind of give you a dollar and just say, you know, enjoy your day on the summer. Yeah. And so I would just play outside. I would just hoop nonstop, and then White Man Can't Jump came out. <laughs> and it was like... This is it. So then every, cause I was, cause it was so cool for a kid that didn't have anything, yeah. had nothing to watch guys go to the park literally every day mm -hmm. and just talk trash and just hoop. And you got to see the culture of, you know, you say street ball, but you got to see the culture of basketball where it's like, no, you got your park and like who runs that park. But then you go to another park and it's, that's their rules and that's their game. So like white man can't jump came out and I was like, I'm that dude. <laughs> I'm that dude that's at that park every single day. And so like once that kind of got into my bones and I didn't have nothing else to do. So every day during the summer, I would just go hoop there. I didn't play organized basketball until I was like 15. Oh my God. Right. So like that's unheard of yeah. now. And so I was a little bit of a slow learner, but I figured it out. I feel like that origin story is similar to a lot of the people of your era. Mm -hmm. Like nowadays, I have a cousin who is now 14. When he was five, he was in camps. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's, it's a lot different growing a basketball player now than it was when you were growing up. It is. And I, I have two little boys, four and six. They love basketball. Like they are like Space Jam. They are like the soundtrack. Like they the, anything associated with like things that are basketball, like they love. And so as much as I like to, tr like, like they want to train and they want to like do dribbling drills and all that stuff. And I know he's six, but at that age, they start to really figure it out and right. want to get good. But it's like, I also know that like teaching the game of basketball is not just being really good at drills, mm. right? You got to let them go play. And that might be when I'm like, when I'm, when they're 14 and they're 13, it's like, dad's going to go sit at the park. You're going to go play at this park in Inglewood at here. And you're going to go play against some grown men. Right. You're going to understand. You're going to understand that if you run your mouth, there's repercussions. You're going to understand, like, you might have to sit on the side when you lose. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, you got next. Like, you lose. You're going to have to sit here for an hour. 
that ins that incentivize you to play harder, to play more aggressive. These are things that are a part of the culture of the game of basketball. So I think you hear that from a lot of people because it's true, yeah. right? Like people don't play enough. They just train. But I also think that's why you see guys' bodies broken down more and more and more at a younger age because they're not just playing. They're, it's the repetitive stress injury. Yeah. It's like in golf, that repetitive swing. If you're just constantly doing these drills, if you're just constantly doing this stuff, your body's not really getting stronger. Your body, in, in some ways, can be getting weaker. Mm. So you go from uh, getting into the sport late. Mm -hmm. You said 14, 15, not highly recruited until your senior year. Yeah. And then you're on a magazine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, what was that like going from virtually no one in the sports world to being on the cover of a magazine? Life is life is life is changes quickly. <laughs> yeah. And it's it, it look, it's not even like in a it's not even in like a, a weird way, but it's like I'm still riding a wave, but I'm riding it with a competitive edge, right? Like I'm Arizona and like all these dudes is talking trash, you know, I'm light skinned and this and that. And it's just like, all right. But you know, I was an athlete and I was like, you know, you saw the dunks at 36. Yeah. Imagine the dunks at 16, 17. Right. Like I was like trying to just take people's heads <laughs> off. That was like my only goal in life. So you know what it was? There was a humility to it because I understood that like, I like, I, this is a gift from God. Like my, I have a brother that's five foot nine, oh, right? Wow. I have a brother that's six foot two. My uh -huh. mom's also five eleven. So it's like I didn't know that. It's not like I had tall family members that all played right. basketball. It was more of like I just kind of started playing. I kept growing, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but we're gonna ride this out. Right. And so, no, for me, it just it it, it was a gradual increase my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so then I like you know, even when I got to college or whatever, it was still just a gradual increase. So I stayed humbled and I also, I, it made me love the game from a fun standpoint. That's why I have so much fun yeah. because my passion in the game that was started early is from watching White Man Can't Jump. It's from going to the park every day. Right. So like when I'm a basketball fan, it's because, yo, this shit's fun, man, what are we doing? <laughs> and so then when I'm trolling people are cracking jokes, I'm like, yo man, that's just my origin, man. Like I approach this like, yo, I love to be competitive compete but it's because i find it fun you know all right so we talked about a little bit of the culture of basketball one thing that's incorporated that is the sneakers right yep. we talked about before show big sneaker head here yeah you came with some uggs i don't know if they can see it on camera you came with the uggs on but we do have a little throwback here where on earth tell me what this is and that that reaction right there Okay, so I know this is an old shoe. We got the dust and shit. But listen, kids, so all you guys that think that I'm bum, that I'm trash, Nike doesn't just put people's numbers and nicknames on the, on the back of the shoe. My nickname was moving on up because, you know, the Jeffersons, again, pre-your time. Uh, but this is when the shocks came out. You know, Vince Carter showed up, and it was like the shocks, and it was the boing, and it was all that. So Nike was really pumping that to their young players. And my other shoe says moving on, uh, it says moving, and this one, the back of this says on up. Mm -hmm. And so that was it, man. Like, I had a Nike commercial with, with, uh, with Vince. I actually had a few commercials for all you guys that think I'm bummed. Uh, no, man, but this, this brings me back, man, because, like, even so, once you're a part of like the Nike signature shoe guys, mm -hmm. they like even when I was with the Cavs or when I was like with Denver my last year, like you're a part of that. So Nike will send you Denver Nugget color shoes mm -hmm. with your number, with your logo, the with PEs. all of, the PEs. They yeah. will send you PEs. So like I had like dude, like rookies would be like, how do you have PEs? <laughs> You've averaged four points a game the last five years. I'm like, dog, I'm a part of the family. Like, it wasn't always this way, man. But this is dope, man. This is cool. My signature hasn't changed. As, at all, huh? Nah. 
Is that something you practice? I mean, you've probably signed a yeah, million yeah, yeah, things. Yeah, I've probably right? signed a million things. And it's pretty much like how quickly I can get done with it. So that's pretty dope. <laughs> you can find your own pair of one-of-a-kind Richard Jefferson kicks, maybe even this one on eBay. Check the link in the description for more information. Talk to me about the commercial associated with the shoe with UMVC. So, you know, again, gradual increase. So my first couple years, like I'm starting to establish myself as a, as a dunker. And it was like, but this was in the era of Vince Carter. Right. You can be a great passer if you're in the era of my Magic Johnson. No one cares. Yeah. Like, like think about like even LeBron James, like Michael Jordan. Like you could be great, but it doesn't matter. So, I was fortunate, man. Like I came up in the era of Vince Carter. I was one of the Nike guys, and as I started to make a name for myself as a body catcher, they were like, "We're gonna pair," because that's what they do. They often pair their star with like a younger up and coming mm. guy, just to kind of introduce, kind of to see the reaction, to let their Nike. If you're a fan of Vince Carter, you should be a fan of this guy and stuff like that and it was it was it was one of the most you know dope things i'd ever been a part of and i had no idea like it's still like somewhat relevant today because you see it popping up and it was one of the i personally think it was one of the coolest commercials for sure yeah my mom actually hit me up right because again i'm just a fairly oblivious aloof person and my mom calls me and air commercial had been airing a lot but it had been airing my mom was like richard richard i was watching american idol and, and they played your commercial. And I go, and this exact words to this day. It's like, mom, I don't, I don't care. I don't watch American Idol. And she goes, yes, but everybody else does. <laughs> and I was like, and then at that point in time is when it hit me like, oh shit, all of America just saw my commercial. Yeah, yeah. That's when things get weird, man. And that's the part, it's like, it's the culture. Like you grow up watching Michael Jordan commercials. You grow up watching Gatorade commercials. And then all of a sudden, like, you're 22 years old and you're filming a Nike commercial for Vince with Vince. And I just think I'm the fun sidekick. I didn't even see the final video until it was the commercial was up. Wow. So then all of a sudden you're like a part of the culture. You're a part of the shoe game. You're a part like something that will last forever. Like those are probably like some of the most random cherished memories. We're going to put it back to the test. You said that your signature is I'm the such same. an asshole for saying that. It's got another panel. RJ, do the honors. Oh, God, it's my pleasure. Can I look? This refresh? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a fine. That's fair. Well, RJ signs that. Let me tell you that you can find your own pair of one-of-a-kind Richard Jefferson kicks, maybe even these actual ones on eBay. Double this, signature. Let me see it. Double signature. It's not great because I'm going to blame, like, the, the, the reason why I signed here is because it's a very smooth, mm. flat surface. Here, it's a little bit more rigid. It's right. a little bit tough. So, so when you guys all become superstars, you got to find the flat, rigid area, the, or the flat area on the shoe, because that's what they're going to ask you to sign. So you just got to make sure, you know, that's why Jordan's a lot of times, and I'm just messing with this, a lot of times you'll see people sign this part of the Jordan, mm. right? Because, like, this is good, but this one gives you a lot of space, and you can really do something with it so when all of you guys get famous remember that famous tip um when i was younger i used to practice signing things too did you yeah what'd then, you do was it like did you sign like checks to your mom like did you no. practice like when i'm famous it was like um we'd be at restaurants on napkins boom okay Kenny Beecham, boom okay. number 13 because that was my number that was your number day. okay yeah, never got to that point to, to sign something for real. You haven't signed anything yet. Well, okay, not, I was like, nothing, I was like, nothing of this significance. What like mean a, that a, significant? This is a PE. This is your sneaker. I don't have anything like this. I got, oh yeah, I got tons of P's. If you want P's, I, no, I'm just, but no, you have to understand, and I stand this, we talk so much about culture and we talk so much about the importance of like what 
the culture means to young kids. Mm. Like I w had nothing, came from nothing, and I just needed something to do. And I liked playing basketball and I would go to the same park. But when I saw White Man Can't Jump, it changed, it changed right. my life. Right. What you're doing right now for the culture and introducing people like me and things like that to these younger kids, you are advancing the culture of the game of basketball. You are growing fans. There will be a kid that will be a top 10 pick that is a huge fan of you and will get starstruck <laughs> when he sees you because he grew up watching you right. because he loved the culture and you are representing it. So the time is coming. Okay, I appreciate that. No That's problem. like all of the serotonin my brain needs. <laughs> RJ just told me a top 10 pick is gonna be a fan of mine. Heck yeah. <laughs> That's 100%, man. Like, like Kyrie Irving, right? Mm -hmm. One of the greatest players of all time. I was fortunate. I did a uh, road tripping podcast, the podcast that I do, and me and Channing Fry were about to record our first podcast. Mm. Right? I know nothing about Kyrie. He's my teammate, but like your boys, you don't really talk. Right. And so he comes into the room, and we're sitting there, and I knew he's the East Coast kid, Jersey, blah blah. But all of a sudden, he sits there, and we're talking. He's like, "Do you understand? I lived in Jersey. First game I ever went to, Continental Airline Arena." And he's like vibing out, like, yeah. and I'm like, "Damn, Kyrie, you know, like, because you know, Kyrie's either quiet yep. or he's the life of the party." Right, right. And that moment, he decided to be the life of the party. I was like, "Kyrie, I had no idea that you were. Oh my God, Jason Kidd, and my like, we were at the very, very top of the arena. And the next thing I know, like after the game, like his dad knew some people. He's like, like they were on, like my dad was like, "Hey, do you want to go?" on the court and shoes like no not till I'm a player and all oh, of a wow. sudden like now he's like with the Brooklyn Nets because he grew up a huge Nets fan right. and I'm like I had no idea Kyrie is going to go down as one of the greatest basketball players of all time and there's a small portion of him that grew up being a big fan of me and Jason Kidd and Kenyon Martin mm -hmm. that's going to happen to you so quickly and it's going to be hilarious but so just don't ever forget that okay. when you're going through this when these people are annoying you in the back and when <laughs> you like you're not doing it for them or the money or the fame you're doing it because you're contributing to the culture and you're making the game better I don't even know how I you don't. respond you to don't. that. You don't. Like, <laughs> Do we just, just go just, on? Just, yeah. Okay, just go we just, just go on. Just... <laughs> Talk to me about the transition from being a player to now being a media broadcaster. Every transition is difficult. It has its thing. It has that. I, I think for me, like you guys know, I don't shut up. I haven't shut up <laughs> since I walked into this room. So it's like finding something that you like can do and you have the ability to do and something that you enjoy doing. Mm. Like... When I first started my podcast, it was because we would sit at dinners, our Cavs team, and we would be 12 of us there, and we would drink wine, and we would just tell stories nonstop. And I'm like, man, and these were like all PG-13 stories. They weren't anything crazy, and you're just like, I think people would really dig this. Sure, start yeah. the podcast, fast forward, and a lot of it was because I was about to retire, and I just needed to get like reps. And if you want to go into that industry, but I've had so many people, just like just like your basketball game, that have supported you, that have believed in you. Mm -hmm. There are people that like were like, Richard, you're gonna do this, and I'm like, I'm gonna do what? They're like, No, you're gonna be fine. You have a chance to be very very good in this business, but you got to grow. So it's like random things like right. learning to read prompter, learning which camera, learning the cadence. So you'll know this, a show like this, right? Let's look at all the forms of media. Mm -hmm. A conversational show like this. The cadence that you have when you're talking on the podcast is you can't have any dead air. It's gotta right. be constant. But the cadence to when you're calling a basketball game, you gotta be quiet sometimes because you can hear the arena. Mm -hmm. You can hear the, the, the squeaks of the sneakers, the ball bouncing, the coach's calls. Typically a player like myself, which is the, uh, the, the color analyst, I have from when the ball gets to the three-point line to the three-point line, 
to make my statement, yeah. right? So it's like a shot happens. Maybe there's a quick replay. The ball's going up. And it's like, that was a great pick. They did the backcourt. They've been doing that, blah, blah, blah. But then by the time the ball hits that three-point line, I have to then lay out and let the play-by-play -play play right. guy do the next one. Now, it's harder now because the game's a basketball. Everyone's scoring. But that's <laughs> a cadence there. But the cadence for an analyst, right? You have somebody in your ear. So if you're on like one of the shows, like yeah. first take, mm -hmm. you have 30 seconds to make your point and you have to talk and come up with your point. And the, and the producers in your ear is like, all right, five, four, three, and then you got to finish your point. Yeah. So people will never truly understand how hard these jobs are mm -hmm. and when you're doing, especially when you're doing multiple versions of it. It's kind of like, I would kind of like swimming. There's the backstroke, there's the breaststroke, right. there's the freestyle. They're all swimming, but they're all very different. Yeah. See, I, I have a little bit of experience there, not on ESPN, like no, the biggest platform, yet, yeah, yeah. but I, I can speak to that too, where you have the IFB and, and the producer wants you to get that point across, but like, there's so much to say, typically. There's yeah. just so much to say, and you just can't get it all in in that 30 seconds. We used to do a Twitter show um, that, was, that was live, and when it's live, you have a certain you have a certain time you have to stop. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a guy that can r uh, ramble, especially about something I'm passionate about. We get it. We get it. I'm the guy. I'm the same way. And I just had to tell myself that nobody cares about the extra 40 seconds of stuff that you have to say. Get to the main points and, and that's it. Well, and that's what they talk called, but like, it's again, you learn how to be more efficient with your words. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the tricks that they teach you in your brain is like, hey, use eight words instead of 12, right? You use 10 words instead of 22, like get to your point, make it clear and concise, but anything that you do in life, that's why people are so like, that's why, you know, anytime you get on Twitter, they hate every analyst, but you have to understand like some certain guys, like, dude, if you've been doing something for five years, 10 years, especially in the public eye, even if guys that are in one or two years, like I'm only, I'm just in my third year right. of doing this. It's like, it takes decades. Mm -hmm. When you listen to Mike Breen, you didn't, you're not listening to yeah. Mike Breen in his first three years of doing this, right. or Bob Casas, or Marv Albert, or, or Ian Eagle. It takes guys decades mm -hmm. to get to that, but analysts aren't given that exact same, right. you know, kind of latitude. And I know that's just the culture of the business, but what you do and, and, and what, you know, we in this industry have to do is very, very difficult because there's so many different layers to it. Did you know when you were starting road tripping that you would start this like revolution of players having podcasts slash being in the media? Because from from my research, you we were, were the, the first, first NBA again. NBA with current active players, and now we got like JJ's show. I feel like everybody, Every, everybody has, has a every, pod now. Everybody has a podcast, and I'm okay with that. Again, it's culture. If you're impacting the culture, we were the first athletes to have a podcast in season, mm. right? So now you have like soccer and you have this and like the season is in and out, the season's always blurred. So it's like, we were the first ones. So when I look back on what I've done in the media, right? None of that, I don't even include that in sports, but I include that as the media because my goal when I was doing that was to prep for my next stage. And I was like, how do I get more comfortable talking to people, interviewing people? How do I learn about this? How do I figure out ways to stop saying, um, and, right, uh, yeah. and all those things yeah. are skills that people don't understand. I look back on it and I'm like, holy shit, like 
I impacted the media game. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it wasn't going to happen, but there's always a first. There's always a first. Always a first. And it, the being the first wasn't even easy because we were nervous. Like we're putting this stuff out. And I kid you not, from the first time we released our first episode, like we just happened to go on like a, we lost like seven out of 13. Mm -hmm. And so you know, a lot of times you're like, is it starting line? Is it this? Is like, well, these guys have been goofing off on this podcast. <laughs> and so it's like, no, no, no. And so we had to like fight that. I had to fight that mm -hmm. kind of narrative of like, nah, Richard, like what you're doing is good. Like you're just, it's positive. And I also learned so many things. Like on that podcast, I learned that I didn't want clickbait. Mm -hmm. I was like, because, and it was smart because I don't want click, click, clickbait because I don't want it to negatively impact our team. Yeah. So if there was anything controversial or anything said that was random or, and trust me, a lot of random stuff is said when you're drinking wine, having fun, I would edit it out. Mm -hmm. And I learned how much my teammates respected the fact that they could sit down and say anything that they want. Right. I would let them listen to it. I would let their people listen to it. Anything that you edited it out. It was never, oh, but come on, that's yeah. so good. Or, yeah. oh, come on, yeah. that's so funny. It was never that. If that's what you want out, say no more, it's done. And we never made a mistake. We mm -hmm. never made a mistake over that time. And there, there were still enough clicks that came sure, from yeah. it. But it wasn't because we were like, oh, this person said that or this person said that. So, you know, the fact that I impacted the culture of like low key, like America, <laughs> like it's kind of cool, right? Yeah, clickbait is easy. Yeah, that's that's an easy that's part. That's sustainable of this though, because yeah. then you just got to keep ramping up more right. and more. Right. You know, I don't think there's anything you said in this episode that's clickbait worthy. Nah, no, 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 not no. yet. Let, let, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. How much longer do we got? I don't even know. Let's see. This is the last question. Okay, perfect. <laughs> this is the last question we have. Um, it's one I ask every guest. Okay. The name of the show called Game. You already made a reference to it when you came into the show. Paul Pierce, you mm -hmm. know, hitting the game winner. So my question to you, if the game is on the line, you can have one person take your game winning shot. Who is that person? Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one. If it's not me. You can say yourself if you want to. Always bet on yourself. Uh-huh. I'm going to say me, and then I'm going to beg you to say not if it's not you. All right, anybody but RJ. Okay, cool, because thank God, because I, like, I, I wouldn't want to take the shot for my life, all right? I'm going to give it to the one person, and I, I'm, he's not the best person I've ever played with because I've played with Tim Duncan and Dirk mm -hmm. Nowitzki and, and, and Braun and Steph and all these people. But the person that hit the biggest shot that I've ever been a part of is Kyrie. Mm. And it's one of the biggest shots in sports history. It's one of the biggest singular plays in ever. American sports yeah. history, like baseball, mm -hmm. football, like one of the most like over the top. What was at stake in that moment? 3-1 mm. comeback, back-to-back -back unanimous MVP. You're on the road against a team that had lost, like they never lost back-to-back -back games at home all year. Yep. All of these things went into this equation and he stepped up and hit a three like it was a yeah. layup. Easy. I kid you not, like I was sitting there and I was like, okay, let me clear out. I was on the court. I cleared out from the strong side to the weak side. I'm like, okay, when he shoots it, did it is. And I was like, listen, if he drives, like be ready. All of a sudden I'm watching, like going through the things in my head and next thing you know, I'm like, holy shit, he's shooting a three? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, it went in. All right, get back. You know, so it was, if I had to have one person for my sh for my life, because I, I, that, that, that shot changed my life. I feel that. Wow. So we just said Richard Jefferson on Call Game, of course, had to ask him the question, with the game on the line, who does he want the shot to go to? He started off with himself. The first person to come onto the show and say, I want to take that shot. I like that confidence. But then he went to his former teammate and one of the biggest shots in the history of basketball, Kyrie Irving. That man is clutch, he is as skilled as anybody ever. Those are two really good picks. Shout out to Richard Jefferson. But these are the picks that he would want to call game.
That's a great way to end the show, man. Uh, if you did enjoy, be sure to leave it a like. Is there anything last you would like to say to the people at home watching? Damn right. Go follow my 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 YouTube channel at The Sports Gap. We got a real crazy show. Road Tripping. That's where we drop all of our episodes. And after that, man, I appreciate you guys. You guys got a good one here. Appreciate that, man. Thank you for coming to the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for watching this episode. Thank you to RJ for stopping by. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave it a like, subscribe, and I'll be back next week. Peace.